Midlife Moxie. We are a community and podcast all about midlife women making this one of the best seasons of their lives. Well, I'm one of your hosts, Gail. And I'm Christina. We're going to be sharing our stories, struggles, and joys while bringing you experts on topics that you care about. And we're going to do it while having a whole lot of fun. So buckle up, girls. Let's get our Moxie on. Well, hey, Christina. Hey, what's going on in uh, not South Cali, but what do you call that? No cow. No cow. <laughs> no Is cow. That how you say that? Yeah, NorCal. NorCal. Yep. Uh, it's sunny today. It I was know. like storming yesterday. Today it's beautiful. So. We can't decide if it's going to be winter or summer. That's what's mm. going on here. And we're recording this episode before Christmas, so I really need it to feel like winter. And there, guess what? On our projected weather, or on our weather app for projections for the next few weeks, I was just looking through it to see what the holidays are going to bring, and there was a snowflake up here. Oh. On December 23rd, I almost peed my pants because yeah, yeah that just it that's never stays before Christmas here. So, <laughs> Well, today we're going to go deeper into the weeds with a previous guest, and she was so great, but I felt like there was so much more to discuss on this topic, didn't you? Yes, absolutely. So Portia Wood's back. She is an attorney. And one of the coolest things about Portia is she's in practice with her mom, who's also an attorney. Now, you talk about some badass women. Let's go. Let's go. Me and Mama running the show here. I love that. So (laughs) welcome back, Portia. I'm going to let you tell them kind of about your practice and um, the type of law that you guys really specialize in. Yeah, thank you guys so much. And thank you for having me back here on the show, The Midlife Moxie. Um, I'm really excited to be here with you ladies again. So thank you. So tell me about Um, your practice. Yeah, for those of you listening, my name is Portia Wood. I am a generational wealth planning attorney. Uh, So our practice is really focused on helping average Americans build and protect the wealth that they're working for so that it can continue to grow and be used for future generations. Most people find that they don't know what those tools are, and so they end up losing it. Everything we're working for every day gets lost in a court process every time somebody gets sick or injured, or at least that's what the studies show. And so we're really trying to change that narrative and make sure that people know what tools are available to them so that they can protect their own families. And you know what's interesting about this to me? I've been given this a lot of thought lately. You're going to think I'm crazy when I say it. But, you know, we talk about it in America being a land of free and land of opportunity. But there's ways in which our country operates like a caste system. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I would say that's true. I think that there are the people who have and the people who have not. Um, and those who have have access to information and teams and people that can help perpetuate the have. Whereas the people who have not really have to fight tooth and nail to learn. It doesn't mean the information's not out there. It just means that they've got to work much harder to, to access it. Um, if at and all. to afford and, it, to afford the help, because yeah. this, your, your services aren't cheap. No, no shade on you. You earn every penny. But, you know, you start to see how the rich get richer and the poor stay poor. And you start to look into some of these things. And um, that I noticed um I was in a situation at, at one time and I realized that 
rich people get a lot of things for free too. That was really surprising to Mm -hmm. me. I'm like, the people who can most afford it don't pay for it, but the people who can least afford it pay for everything. Um, You know, and I know we have healthcare and stuff for low income, but I'm talking, you know, more of that middle America. Middle America seems to be the one that's really, you know, you're going to stay middle America, it seems like. But I love well, generally it. the the challenge of that is that middle America actually doesn't stay middle America. Um, and in many communities, particularly in the African-American community, children actually were doing worse than their parents oh, no. um, because so a lot of those factory jobs and things that were pathways to homeownership and, and um, retirement accounts, pensions, et cetera, disappeared. And so there You're wasn't so right. a whole lot of opportunity for the next generation and again, that goes back to this whole point of, well, they were able to accumulate a house, a retirement account, these other assets. We can't lose them because if we lose them, those jobs and opportunities weren't available for the kids. And so how are they going to continue to progress inside of our society where housing costs have gone up 24% in the you last know, couple of years, really, with, et cetera? A really big point that we should spend a minute on because I think a lot of us don't understand how our parents accumulate wealth. Because my mm. parents did accumulate some wealth after coming out of poverty, both grew up in poverty. But mm-hmm. they, like you said, in that time, you could go and get a job in a mill. And they lived in a mill mm-hmm. town. My grandmother worked in a mill her whole life. And she died with money in the bank as a single mom. Raised three mm-hmm. kids that way and was able to. Now you go get a job in a mill. Number one, that's probably not going to pay your bills completely. You're going to have to have a two income. And a lot of those things that did come along with that pension plans, like my husband is old enough that we do have a very, very small pension check he gets from a very old job, but that's no more. And I think when we look at our parents, we don't realize the things that they had that we don't have and why things look Mm -hmm. different. Our jobs in this day and time, even if you have a job for the man, you know, you put in your 50 a week. It's not providing oh, 50. <laughs> 50. Yeah, if you're lucky, 50, 60 a Ooh. week, you are not getting things like retirement and pension, and more of it falls on you with 401k. And I think a lot of us that, you know, we come out of college, we get jobs, and we really don't understand the importance of 401ks. We don't understand how they work. Then it falls on us to do the investing. And that's, you want to talk a little bit about that shift and what, you know, these generations now. I think that's part of the reason we're not doing as well, because back in the day, you just had the pension plan and you even had insurance for you younger people. People would retire and got to keep their insurance the rest of their lives. Crazy talk, right? So Portia, talk a little bit about that change (laughs) and that shift. Well, I mean, we we see it in society, right? We've we've seen laws get passed um, that deregulated business that allowed for lots of jobs to move overseas, but also for us to change the way which we pay um, workers, right? We don't have those same benefits anymore that that we used to offer, um, putting the onus much more on individualism. It's an easy way to to sort of skirt responsibility and say, hey, well, you failed to to invest, you failed to do this. That's a you problem, not a system problem. Um, so we we're I say we, the universal we, have sort of been skirting this responsibility to say, well, it's not on on us, it's on you, without taking into account that we didn't provide any educational resources into this. People followed in the footsteps of their parents, expecting to have a similar result and realizing that that doesn't exist. 
for taking the idea of, well, I can go to college and that's a guaranteed into a job. And now that's no longer true. And it's guaranteed into debt if you don't have enough money. So all of these promises that were given to the the Gen X and the millennial um, generations of here's how you succeed in our society were actually false premises. 401ks, I mean, even the advent of the 401k was this idea of like put money away. It's a way to save for retirement, but it's a tax deferred account. Mm -hmm. So you're going to be taxed on the back end. So why people, you know, the government wants you to put your money there. They're going to take their piece, but you know, Roth IRAs, they have a contribution limit, but if you're below the, um, the threshold amount, you should be maxing that out because that's after tax dollars going in. And when you go to take it back out later, that's tax-free money for you. So young, start young, invest early and often um, to allow that money time to compound. There are a lot of financial advisors out here. Not all of them are good. There's a variety, but many of them will work with people for free. No matter what level you're, you're at, right? whether you've got millions and millions of dollars, whether you've got 10 cents, there's someone who can help craft a plan for you that's going to get you to where you want to go. The first piece is really having a plan. You've got to have an idea of where you're trying to get to. Otherwise, we're spinning our wheels. You know, and the I more you that. start to think about that plan. Because I think plan, the whole advisor the situation is intimidating. Because when we watch the commercials on yeah. TV and they show this couple walking into, you know, blah, 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 John and Harry's investment services, they obviously yeah. have a pack of cash. You know, they're carrying their bills. <laughs> And right. for the common person who may not have that kind of wealth or that kind of money stacked up, I think it's intimidating to think about going to a financial advisor and you you, you almost feel like you're going to be laughed at. And then I also want to say this. Yeah. I think our generation, I'm 50, turning 56. I think we're the first generation to really have to manage our own investments it, it, because mm-hmm. the boomers still were the last of the people getting pensions and stuff. So you have this first generation to have to manage their own but we got no educational manager on your own. I remember when mm-hmm. I worked in a medical office and didn't work for myself, they gave me, they had this guy come by the office and talk to us. And it was just so weird and intimidating and no idea what mm-hmm. I was doing. Now I'm going to manage my, you want me. <laughs> I was like 28 to decide how I'm going to invest money. Well, I right. think that this sounds good. They make lipstick. You know, that was about my, you know, educational <laughs> investing. Um, Coca-Cola, I thought everybody's always going to drink Coca-Cola, I'll get Coca-Cola, but had no education on it. Well, isn't it true, Portia, that you can actually, if you're intimidated by, you know, financial planning and all of that stuff, you can actually go into, you know, a credit union or even your bank and say, hey, set me up with a, you know, IRA or tell me a little bit about it. Um, Because I know for me, when I was like 18, I think I, I turned 18 and I went into my my credit union and I was like, hey, um, I, I think I need to set up um, an IRA. What does that look like? And, yeah. you know, I'm a I'm a millennial, technically a millennial. And so yeah. I, I think it's I think that it's better that you have a heartbeat on your financial landscape rather than government having a, a heartbeat on your financial landscape. If you're always looking for somebody to give you whatever, you know, I'm like, no, nope, I'll do it myself. Like, I'll, I'll do yeah. it, you know? And yeah, I but in the old days, better. it wasn't, the, even the government, it was your 
local employer that you gave 30 years and that well, you trusted. Yeah. But then, but then this, I mean, the culture has shifted. And I think that we need to take responsibility, personal responsibility to, you know, know our stuff. Because if That's we don't, scary. then we're going to be, we're going to be out, out in the cold, you know? And so there are places right, Portia, that they can go to absolutely get that free advice. Because yes, there are some really bad financial planners out there. And I will say, um, I went um, because my my husband and I were starting to look at our our portfolio and we were um, interviewing new Mm -hmm. financial, new financial planners. And um, this one guy was like, oh yeah, I charge you a coaching fee. And I was like, no, I'm, I, I, I'm good. <laughs> Thank you for your honesty. I appreciate it, but right. I'm good. Um, I don't need that. I know what I need and I know what I want and I know where right. I want to put my money. But see, so, Christina, if the um, average yeah. person walked in there and didn't have your wherewithal, they would think that was normative yeah. and pay that coaching fee. And I think that's where things well, got think crazy between the generations. Yeah. We didn't know. Yeah. And you're 10 yeah. years younger than me. So mm-hmm. it's a little But I think different. it's also important to remember, you guys, that it's not just it's not just that people don't have the financial education. There is also the fact that people have been preyed on. You've got to look at at the situation. There there were companies that had pensions that they were mismanaging their money. And all of these people who were depending on this company to provide them with pensions, they were just like, you're out of luck. And there was zero recourse for them. And so, you know, we're trying to manage corporate greed. We're trying to manage... Um, deregulation in industries. We're trying to manage all of these things inside of what we consider to be a free market economy. Um, but the only person that it really that really suffers at the end of all of those decisions are the workers, are the people who are actually doing the jobs, um, because they're well, we and especially being a woman, a lot of women have depended. Like I'm probably one of the last generations that. It was still seen as the the men were more the money makers, you know, when my generation right. really started to change. But for a lot of us, we you were still looking for that husband to handle those matters mm-hmm. and those things to be provided through his job. So if you suddenly right. become a single female in midlife and lose all that, like when I went through my di- yeah. first divorce, my husband had a very nice profit sharing, which you don't hear that term mm. anymore, but right. <laughs> you know, a lot of money in a profit sharing account worked for a very big company. And just to get out of it, I walked away with 10% after being married 10 years and going through hell. Oh, wow. Big mistake. But I was young and I just thought, I don't care. I just want out. So, you know, right. we as women, we need to educate ourselves better and we need to educate our daughters better on, you know, always knowing your money. Okay. I love mm-hmm. that. So we're going to get our financial advice on point. Now, so I do have one question, Portia. Okay. So you were talking about, you know, the right, oh, oh my gosh, I can't even talk this morning, the Roth, the Roth IRA. Um, and just for some of our listeners, I, I think it would be really good to, um, to share the difference between a, a traditional a traditional IRA versus a Roth, would that be okay that you you? So share that? I would say that I am not a financial advisor. So I will do a disclaimer, right? I am not yeah. a licensed financial advisor. Yeah. Well, um, and so really, when we're dealing with these tax accounts, we're dealing with how do we pass them on, 
Um, yes. So with a Roth IRA, you're contributing after tax dollars, and then the money grows tax free. And then you can basically take it out after 59 and a half without penalty, um, without tax, right? On a traditional IRA, you contribute pre or after tax dollars, and the money grows tax deferred. And then the withdrawals are taxed after age 59 and a half when you start to take distributions. So the big differences between traditional and Roth is one is after tax dollars that grows tax-free that does not have um, taxes on the withdrawal, whereas a traditional IRA is either pre or after tax dollars, but tax deferred, and then you pay taxes when you take it out which is a big difference, which is why a Roth can be really powerful. The other thing that we need to think about, especially as, you know, these boss women who are out here in uh, building businesses and and raising kids and running our households is we can hire our kids. And if we Mm -hmm. hire them and we get them W-2 income, now they're making earned income. And guess what they can have? They can have a Roth IRA because they're getting earned income, which means you can actually start putting away after-tax dollars for your children when they're young. And imagine how much that gets to grow tax-free all the way through life. You're setting them up for, for a retirement in a future that they couldn't do themselves. The amount of years and decades you can get them a head start, compounding interest, right? Yeah. We, I yeah. know you guys have talked about it before, but the compounding interest effect is time, protection, stable economy, guaranteed money growth. And Mm -hmm. if you're getting um, an interest rate where every 10 years that money is doubling, well, you put in $5,000 when they're zero to 10, by the time they're 10, it's $10,000. By the time they're 20, you know, it's $20,000 and you haven't put anything else in, right? Mm -hmm. That's just the doubling effect. But imagine you keep contributing and it keeps doubling and it keeps doubling and it keeps doubling. By the time they're 59 and a half or 60 years old, that money's doubled six, seven, eight, nine, ten times, depending on what you've you've put in, they're set up. Cause that's something you did. Separate and distinct from their own life. Same that. thing with life insurance. Getting life insurance on our kids, people think it's a little bit morbid. <laughs> I do understand that people think it's a little bit morbid. No, but the it's reality important. is no, that's so me, Christine. Important. I'm over here and it's oh my important. God, it feels morbid. It's important. I'm also I, I hate this stuff. I'm just gonna be honest with you. <laughs> I, I like my money, but when it comes to investments and when it comes to taxes, this is what I feel like. La, 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 la. I'm just being <laughs> honest because I know there's other women out there yeah. that feel that way. I feel overwhelmed. I feel uneducated. And so I just get very nervous about it and don't know the right things to do. And I'm that time. Sometimes if I don't know the right thing to do, I'll just panic and do nothing. And so... Yeah. This is definitely an area I need to learn more about. I, I want to ask you about some things that I'm hearing about lately when we talk about generational wealth. I heard of this new thing involving life insurance. Is it a LERP? Is that the term? I'm not sure. Keep telling me more. <laughs> it's a life insurance policy that can also be used to pay end of life expenses and things like um, long-term care. It doesn't have to just mm-hmm. be payable on death. Uh, do either one of you know anything about that? So it's the life insurance retirement plan. I wouldn't be able to speak to that too much because I, I don't do, uh, I don't sell life insurance. But the life insurance is a vehicle in generational wealth. 
And it is an important vehicle for everyone and one that everybody can have. There are different strategies. So it's important to talk. Can you talk about the different types? Because that's what I just get so overwhelmed. I'm like, I don't even know what to say. Of course. So, so um, from a basic level, right, there's permanent insurance and then there's temporary insurance. So you have term versus permanent. Term is incredibly inexpensive, right, for large amounts of money. So people typically go for term. Um, and so that might be 20 or 30 years and you maybe pay, you know, 30 bucks and you get a million and a half or $2 million of life insurance coverage. Um, term is like renting an apartment. You get it for that period of time. That's your lease, right? You're covered under that period of time. And when your lease is up, they renegotiate. It's based on the age. It's based on the market, et cetera. And so if they're renegotiating with you, and let's say you're now 30 years older than when you first got it, you are likely not going to get the same price and insurance that you Mm -hmm. had before. It's going to be much more expensive. But if you're someone who has minor kids and you need to work on replacing your economic value to your household, if something happens, term can be really valuable in getting you that number that you need while you're still in the accumulation phase. Now, permanent insurance, and there's different types, right? So the LERP being one of them, um, IULs, uh, all of this, there's all different types. And so okay, what's an IUL? Let's go ahead and just keep it kindergarten over here. (laughs) She was like, what's an IUL? Uh, Index universal life insurance. And so there's all these different types of of life insurance, right? So in an index universal life insurance, you know, it lets the policyholder or you decide how much of the cash value you want to assign to a fixed account or an equity indexed account. So what do you want? How do you want it to grow? Permanent insurance is like um, purchasing a home. It costs you more, but you pay for a period of time. And at the end, you own it. And at the same time that you're paying down the mortgage, right, when you stick with that analogy, as you're paying down the mortgage, you're also building equity. It's growing. It's invested. It's in these different markets. And so you can pull from that equity, which people don't realize, or many people don't realize, is that if you're building equity inside of your policy and you need to pay for something, you want to buy a house and you've got money in in this life insurance, you can borrow from yourself tax-free at any point in time, even if you haven't finished paying off that life insurance policy. And then you can put it back in if you want to. If you don't, then when the death benefit comes out, they'll just deduct whatever policy loans are on the policy from the death benefit when you pass away. Your, Your account will not grow as quickly as if you had paid off that loan, but it's money that is available to you that doesn't have the same penalties of an IRA. And just like a good example, I got uh, a combination of the two. I got a permanent policy and I got a term policy when my son was born. Because I was like, I have this economic value that I need to replace in my household and it's going to be this much. And if I paid that in all permanent, it would be a few thousand dollars a month. And I was like, eh, I'm not really trying to do that. So I did a combination of the two to hit that number within the budget that I set out. So I had my number of how much I needed within the budget that I had identified, which is why it's important to start with your budget. What can you afford? Um, And then the next piece is really going to be, okay, five years later, my son's five now, I wanted to buy a duplex with my sister and my cousin. We just closed uh, two, three weeks ago um, in Shaker Heights, Ohio. And I was like, okay, 
I could sell some of my stocks in a down market, which would be silly, and take money out of that. I could do a portfolio loan that would be tax free, but the market's too volatile. I don't want to do that. Mm -hmm. So I pulled my percent, my portion of the down payment from my life insurance policy. I got it in two days. It was tax free. I then turned it over to this other asset and have been just paying down. And now it's making money. And I'm using Mm -hmm. that money to repay the life insurance to pay off the policy so that when we go to do the next deal in a couple of months, I can just pull from there again. Right. And so what I just keep doing is is pulling from that life insurance policy um, tax-free. I was in my account in two days. It was super easy. Now, this is probably a dumb question. But when people, because I think this is where a lot of people land, whatever the employer provides, that's what they have. So when we're talking about employer-provided life insurance, is that typically temporary? Yes, generally. And it's also not enough coverage. So generally, Mm -hmm. it's really only one to two years of salary on average is what most people are given. Um, And it's typically a group policy, which means when you leave that group, you probably do not get to keep that insurance, right? So it's only a benefit for while you're there. The biggest piece is that's coming in is really going to be that uh, you want to own your own. You want to control it, right? Because you know, as much like you said, as the millennial concept, you mm-hmm. want to control and be the master of your own destiny. That's right. If that company decides we're no longer going to offer this benefit, you don't have it anymore. And if you've got a kid, let's say you have a five-year-old and you only have two years of salary, what happens? Right? After you're gone, yes, your family can maybe continue to operate for those two years, but then what happens? What do they do? Your kid's now seven and there's no more money. If you make $100,000 a year and you've got a minor kid and you want 20 times your salary, you're looking at about $2 million in life insurance coverage. And that could be a combination between permanent and term, right? But if that $2 million is owned by your trust, your living revocable multi-generational trust, and the beneficiary is your trust for the benefit of your children, right? Then when you pass away, that asset goes, that $2 million goes into your trust. Now, you've instructed in that trust that it's going to be invested. The S&P 500 has returned over the last 20 years an average of 8 to 10%. That's, that's great. If we go conservative to 5%, $2 million at a 5% interest rate is $100,000 in interest income. What you've done is replaced your economic value to your household, not for 20 years, not for two years, not for five years, but for life. What can your children do with that kind of baseline? Education, health, housing, you know, there's certain things that are then covered that they don't have to worry about because you've made a plan. So it's not just I need to get life insurance and it's not just I need to have some years of salary, right? And it's enough that my boss gave me this little bit. No, we got to take control and say, let's make a plan for what this actually looks like. Because I think you make a great point about um, what economic value do I need to replace in my household? Because I think a lot of people look at insurance, life insurance and say, well, will it cost to bury me? And life insurance yeah. is not just for those burial expenses, which no. is going to be a minimum of 10000 Just get prepared because I minimum. had no idea what it cost to bury someone. Um, and that was like my mom she's been gone 10 years now and it was about $10,000 and 
she wanted very basics. Like we did nothing. Like my mother was such a simple woman. She didn't want anything fancy. So it wasn't like the family was trying to skimp. So any of y'all out there checking me, just calm down. You have to know my mom. We spent money where it mattered for her. But I mean, that was just a very basic funeral. And um, so I'm sure it's even more now. But I think we sometimes, if you're not educated on this, that's what you think life insurance is for. Or some people make the mistake of thinking, well, Medicare, the Medicare benefit, I believe, is $250 on death to cover your face. I mean, that is not even going to pay for the blanket on your casket. Um, That's not going to pay for anything. And that's if you get it. Yeah, we're, because, we're, uh, yeah, us, if we if you're younger, you better start wondering if you're even going to get it. But I, I love bringing that up. What economic value do I need to replace my household? Now, here's another million dollar question. What do you say to the person who's out there and says, well, I don't have anything extra because, you know, these last, unlike mm-hmm. our parents, my generation has lived very paycheck to paycheck. My parents saving was always part of the paycheck. Even when they didn't have two nickels to rub together, some small fraction of that nickel went into savings and they did not accumulate debt either. They were the type when they bought a house, they paid extra to pay it off as fast as they could, even though they were poor. I mean, we lived quite meagerly. We didn't do without anything. Let me be clear. My parents took care of me, but my mama, man, ain't nobody squeaked harder than my mama. Let me just tell you. But they then had cash in the bank when it came time for things like college and weddings and retirement. But I think somewhere along the way, there was a shift because, um, you know, Mm -hmm. Gen X, we're famous for living paycheck to paycheck and having a pile of debt on top of that. So what do you say to that person that says, well, I can't afford to take that out of my budget? Pay yourself first. I mean, the, the reality is, is that we have to normalize the idea of paying ourselves first. And you, I would say many millennials, Gen Xers, we got sold a bill of goods that ended up being junk, right? People told us, go to college, you can do this. You'll, that's how you get the six figure jobs and you can buy a house and you can do this. And then they 100X, 1000X the cost of college. Right. But not they the salary that goes was with it, that. But not the salary that goes with it. But because it used like our to be daughter is you could in her 30s, she's still pay paying, school, right? she's still paying off college debt that could have been in my parents' generation would have been money she was probably saving or investing or even I, I see these 30 year olds having trouble buying homes because they've still, they can't. they're not, they student loan debt. the they salary to, it's the not the income ratio. And that salary is not, even though it sounds like a lot of money compared to the expense of housing today, it's so much, (laughs) so much off kilter compared to my parents' time. Because in my parents' time, only my father worked and he didn't Mm -hmm. have a college education and they bought homes, they bought cars. Inflation, right? A hundred thousand dollar job, that six figure job, that, that thing that they, they tell us is the, is the guidepost that we're supposed to be searching, like reaching for that six figure job in inflationary terms from when our parents were seeking that to now is like $350,000. So really the goalpost is 350 and people are still trying to get to the the $100,000 number. And you can't buy a home in that environment. And then think about like BlackRock and these different investment banks yes. that have announced that they're going to put a billion dollars investing in single parent, single family homes. 
and they're going to make it so unaffordable. They're trying to create a generation of renters because yeah. it's a consistent cash flow. So if you've ever played Monopoly and you've just gone around, it's like this. If you go around the board and you don't buy anything and you just pay, you collect your $200 and you just pay all the rich people, you can't win. And essentially what they're doing is they're making the, the property so unaffordable that the next generation that comes up won't be able to, to even buy. They won't be able to play. You can't buy, you can't win. So when we think about what we already have right now, why estate planning is so important is you must protect what you have been able to accumulate with everything you've got. And not just for your children, right? But your children and your grandchildren because it will become even less available yeah. as you go down the line. And people can do that. You can write into your estate plan things like, you can't sell my real estate. Now you can't control it forever, but you can control it for like 96 years after oh, your death. I love so the idea of controlling my children time. from beyond the grave. That just, oh, I, know <laughs> I, you can do. You I remember that from last time. <laughs> can you imagine look on their faces? That crazy woman, she's still telling us what to do. Okay, let's shift gears but a little bit. But I tell my son, he's five, and I tell, I'm just, I tell him all the time, I'm like, we don't sell real estate. We don't do this. You know, this, we, we talk about his custodial account. He, he looks at his investments. There's a certain amount of money I put in every week and we talk about what he wants. Often it's Marvel, right? Cause he's yeah. super into it or Disney, but, but it's always like, well, what are we going to do? Well, this one's not paying you or you've lost money. The market's gone down. He's like, who took my money? I'm like, this is what the markets do. He's like, well, let's buy more. It's cheaper now. And I'm like, yeah, exactly. <laughs> don't get scared. It. Don't sell. It. Let's buy more. Well, uh, but that's the conversation. Yeah, I love I love that you are teaching the next generation about how to look at money and how to be mm. clear on money. I did that with my son and he's very very good with his money. Um mm. he's you know, he always pays himself first. Um yeah. he always looks at what's the best deal. Um he is like, "Okay, I need to buy some property and then I'm going to continue to buy property and mm -hmm. I'm going to have double income." Like he's just like I this, love that. Yeah, he's just this machine of um wisdom when it comes to Other money. Than I like, love you. Thank God. I think the two best things my kids say are credit score went up or they make reference to what they've saved. Those two things make a mama's heart sing, you know, because we've got yeah. one that, um, I'll just be honest. I have some stubborn ones that, um, one had to learn a little bit the hard way, one of mine. And, but he finally got it. And he's like, all the time telling me, okay, my credit score went up by this much. My credit score went up this much. I'm getting ready to cool. buy this. And it's just like, oh, you good boy, you. I'm so proud of you. And um, that he really has learned and taken it seriously. And he did most of that on his own. I mean, he knew my wishes, but he dug in and he educated himself on what he needed to do. And, you know, that's one of the things youngsters, they don't even understand credit now. And credit has become so important. And it's another way that you can be held in a place where you don't accumulate wealth is when you've got bad credit. And, you know, these these kids were raised in a generation where they showed up on college campuses and gave them a bunch of credit cards and ruined their credit because they couldn't pay for that. They didn't even have jobs. But, you know, you it, it, try telling a 19-year-old not to take that credit card. Try telling, you know, it's hard, but hopefully they're going to listen in the future.
If you walked around on pool decks and in the sand all summer, wearing those cute little sandals and going barefoot, then your feet may look like mine and they may need a little love and care. In comes Sandbar Hand Care. This is a special foot file that will get rid of those calluses on those feet and leave them feeling smooth. So if you're crawling into bed at night and the heels of those feet are catching on the sheets, go order yours now. This metal file gently buffs away that dead skin. It removes just enough to really make a difference but not leave your feet sore. And it even comes with a salve to apply after you've gotten rid of that dead skin. I'm already thinking of who I'm getting this for Christmas. They sent us one to try and I fell in love immediately. And mine's even pink. How could you go wrong here? So ladies, head over to sandbarhandcare.com. That's sandbarhandcare.com. And use the code MOXIE15 and you'll get a discount on your order. And all those gifts that you pick up for the holidays. Now back to the show. I want to switch a little bit to say someone is midlife, our age, 50s, 40s, and they haven't done much yet. They haven't made a lot of preparations. I want to talk about the ones that haven't made a lot of preparations, what they should do now, and the ones that have what things need to change at this point. Uh, (laughs) I think, you know, when we start out with, with, credit, right? We're really thinking about, um, or, or not even credit, but just personal finance in general. Start from a plan, right? If you don't know where you are, sit down and write a budget. What are your expenses in your life? What are your fixed expenses? What are your variable expenses? You know, fixed are going to be your mortgage or your rent. It's going to be your car payment, your insurance, you know, those types of things. What are those expenses? And consider paying yourself first, part of those expenses that are fixed, that do do not go anywhere, right? And then your variable expenses, eating out, shopping, um, entertainment, all that stuff. Write down your debt. What is your total debt that you owe, both consumer debt and student loan debt? And then what are the interest rates Mm. on that debt? And, you know, you can either do a debt snowball or a a debt avalanche, which everyone seems like a better system for you. If you don't know what they are, Google them. But but then, and then tackle that in order. There are some great free debt calculators online that you can put the debt in with the interest rate and the payment. And you can say how much you might be able to overpay. Maybe it's $100, maybe it's 50 bucks, but it'll tell you how long it'll take to get rid of all of that debt and in what order you should pay it so that you pay the least amount of interest. It's important to understand what those two things are. Um, and then once you're there, so are you how saying much do you get out in? of debt before you invest? No, not at all. Because okay. the amount of time that it takes for you to get out of debt, you could have been doubling your money someplace else. The, the, the thing about debt is you got to know how to use it. Rich Correct. people, really rich people, don't hold cash, right? Everything is leveraged somewhere. The concept of other people's money is important, right? Mm-hmm. Use other people's money <laughs> as often as you can. But you have to understand it, right? You have to use it in a way that makes sense. I've had clients that are like, oh, I want to get a HELOC so I can pay off my credit card debt. Nope, bad use of a HELOC. Yes. Bad use so of a HELOC. True. If you want to get a HELOC, get it and create an ADU on your garage that's going to generate you income that will pay okay, off you that Okay, you just HELOC. talked a bunch of Chinese to me. 
Okay, wait. <laughs> wait, let me. I'm like, yeah, because I used to be in the mortgage industry, and I'll tell you, people would do the stupidest shit. Sorry, you guys, but the stupidest shit with their money. Sure. They would, they would take, um, and they would go and they would refinance their home, and they would combine everything into their home, their debt, all this stuff. I'm like, that's a bad, this bad. Don't do that. Stop that. You know, or they would, they would use the HELOC. Well, I want to do that. And I'm like, no. What is the HELOC? Okay, Okay, so a HELOC is a home equity line of credit. It's like, oh, I know what that is. I just never heard it called a HELOC. Okay. Yeah, you can kind of use it like a credit card, right? Yeah. It's a revolving credit. So unlike your fixed mortgage, which is fixed and you pay it off over time, and once you've paid it off, it's done. You can't just like keep tapping into whatever you paid off. A HELOC is more like a credit card. It is variable in interest rate, right? Very rarely, I think, can you ever find a fixed um, yeah. HELOC. The, it's variable in interest rate, but it allows you to tap into the equity of your home. You know, Gail, you said something really important. Your parents, you know, they, they pinched their pennies, but they paid off their mortgage early. That is good and bad, depending on what they did with it, right? Because in paying off your mortgage, you've given away your cash that you now can't invest somewhere else instead of using other people's money to hold onto that property. And right now, we just came out of an incredibly low interest rate environment where people have like 2% on their money. They're not mm-hmm. going to refinance to take well, that Let me be clear out, too. My ever. parents did that like before <laughs> there was a home equity line. I mean, this is like 40 years ago. I mean, they were back in the no, day. No, but it makes sense. People, but that's how middle-class families and upper middle class families were able to pay for college, were able to mm-hmm. provide economic opportunities. You know, when we think about the fact that, um, uh, what's his name? Uh, Jeff Bezos, everybody talks about the story of him founding Amazon in a garage and like this built himself up from his bootstraps. Nobody really talks about the quarter of a million dollars his parents gave him the year yeah. after he started Amazon to bail him to keep him from going under, right? Like nobody talks about that. And where, why do they have a quarter of a million dollars in cash to be able to give to their child to support their dreams. I mean, this is the disparity that people don't talk about. They go, oh, the bootstrap reality is possible. People pull from their homes and and the equity that's in their homes. I will say this. I I love me some Dave Ramsey. Okay. Love me some Dave Ramsey, especially for, you know, I I mean, let's just- I got mixed feelings on Mr. Ramsey. I'm just going to throw it out here. Well, I'll say say this. I think that he serves um, a purpose for a certain- um, percentage of the population in the U.S. Right? Like, I just feel he's some like good advice. he does. Yeah, he does. I think but telling you I, to here, never have a credit card is bad advice. Well, here's here's the thing: is I think he's depends. talking. Yeah, it de- it it really depends on like where you're coming from and uh, your your situation. Um, oh my gosh, where was I going, you guys? But I think that. Hold on, I lost it. It went I away. I can pick up with the for right there. Dave yes. Ramsey is great in the sense that he does provide some financial literacy for people. The problem is that advice that he gives is not advice that he even uses himself. Oh, that's right? what like I was going to say. Thank you, Portia. You were, debt. Yes. Like, you as were reading a, my mind. As a business mind. owner and as a multimillionaire, yes. that man leverages but, debt. But yes. Well, they said some things, things that, that and bad debt. debt. Yes. And he had a thank thing. You. He used to thank tell people for saying that. to <laughs> never take out a mortgage where you have to pay mortgage insurance. 
So like See, I- all of these things come from an, a place of privilege. If you're yes. a young person who you only have three and a half percent down and you don't have a family that you can borrow from and you are mm-hmm. actually pulling yourselves up from your bootstraps and you go FHA, you're going to have mortgage insurance. Yeah, you are. And mm-hmm. but But are you going to pass up on the opportunity to buy an asset that you can leverage against My first later, homes, I had mortgage insurance, and else. I paid it down exactly. enough to I was able did. to drop yeah. that mortgage insurance. See, There's that, a point, but, but Gail, that's gone. So that so you used yeah. to be able to pay it off in advance, and you could mm-hmm. get rid of PM, uh, the PMI, PMI, but uh, which is the private yeah. mortgage insurance. But now it's stuck with that loan for I think it's 11 years, and yeah. so they changed the rules. And this is the part that gets so dangerous for people is that. You know, Gail, someone goes, oh, well, you know, I had I had mortgage insurance and I was able to pay it down. And then somebody else goes, OK, so I can just go get that and I can pay it down. But they don't read the fine print and realize that the product they're getting is not the same one mm-hmm. that you got back in the day. It is entirely different. And see, that's and the, how the, I don't the see how we stay. landscape. How anyone can stay up to date. But even if you're paying we, PMI, you have, if you to. invest in a property and grow that equity, then when you sell that property and buy your next one, chances are you can avoid PMI. I watched a friend of mine whose husband (laughs) insisted on following Dave Ramsey to the key, to the T. So I watched them for 10 years pay rent because they would not buy a house till they couldn't, they could get it without paying PMI. And I'm looking at them going, but yeah, you're throwing this amount of money out the window every month. You're going to need it. That's, 12 times what PMI per month would be because even back in the day when I was paying PMI and you on lost home, the growth on it was that like $70 yeah. a month. What's $70 a month? These people are paying. And you lost <sighs> the growth. The equity in the property itself, right? If we right. think about just in the last couple of years, 24% in the value of home of homes, if you weren't in the market because you were following Dave Ramsey's advice and you didn't buy a house in 2020 when interest rates were 2% because you were following Dave Ramsey's advice mm-hmm. and you were trying to not have PMI and then you uh, ended up missing this 24% growth that only is continuing to go up, you've lost the game. You're going to buy up here and now at 7 well, 6.5% interest, yeah. et cetera, which is fine. I still tell people, buy. Buy yes. a house right now at 6.5% yes. mm-hmm. interest. Who yes. cares? The equity it's is going to go. Mm-hmm. This is the thing that I tell people all the time, though. And it's a mistake that I made. And it was like, we get sold this dream of the American dream is buy a house. You've got to buy your single family home. And you've got to have your palatial estate. Ah, blah, 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 blah. Everybody's first home should be a fourplex. Yeah. Everybody's. Everybody should be house hacking. The, the very first purchase you make should be a multi-unit and you should have tenants in the other ones and you should live there and you can do FHA for a year and then you can move and do FHA again and get another fourplex and then you can move and get another fourplex. And then when you're ready, because all of your, your the, the 16 units that you now own will pay for your palatial house, then you go do your FHA on that palatial house and you let your investments do it. But you can't go from your palatial house to a fourplex because FHA will look at you and go, well, this isn't an increase. That's right. You're doing this for investment. This is fraud. So what we have to do is reframe our ethos about wealth and about money. And it doesn't matter where you are. I don't care if you're 50 or 15. You have to reframe your ethos and your mindset around money. And it's not that Dave Ramsey is wrong. There are incredible principles that come into play when it, when we're thinking about Dave Ramsey. And it's not that, you know, um, 
Robert Kiyosaki is wrong. He's not. There's so many good things about what he's talking about, but no strategy, no strategy is one size fits all. Mm-hmm. Each of us are personal. Each of us have our own situation. So Gail, you asked me originally, you said, okay, well, where does somebody start? Start with your budget. Know your numbers. What are your numbers? And then what are your goals? And you know, if I you think are, sometimes it's the people who are really struggling that get afraid yeah. to look at those numbers. And so like, especially 100%. you take a lot of times women wind up single in midlife and they may have been counting on the husband's job, the husband's assets, the husband's 401k, all these things. You've got to really know your numbers and know what life looks for you now, Absolutely. not what life looked for you 20 years ago. And it can be so hard to look at and so discouraging, but knowledge is power. Knowledge is power. Mm-hmm. And you can't, I remember there are times in my life that I wrote it all down and it it, it, it was sad. It was very sad, mm-hmm. but I knew what I was working with and I knew what I had to do. Yep. And I'm a person that is very encouraged by action and just knowing what I could do to change the situation. The one step at a time gave me power and ability to walk out of debt and things that I needed to do. So I love that knowing your numbers, sitting down, getting rid of the debt. So if someone has not invested. But the last piece, Gail, would be the goals. goals. I would just say that the last piece of that is identify what your goals are. You know, there are a lot of ways to make money um, and people should have multiple streams. If you only have your job, yes, you are always at risk of, multiple of losing that job and then you are always at risk yes, of, yes. of one step away from poverty. You can't save away for that. You can't yes. save six, 12 months worth of, um, you know, expenses on your one job because yeah. you still pay those expenses, right? So. You know, all of those strategies, while they are great in idea, you have to create multiple streams. For me, when I was looking for my house in LA, so the first house I bought was in Baltimore. It was a single family. That was silly. I I got roommates. But then I quickly, you know, I was in law school and I quickly realized I don't want to live with people forever. So this was not a good plan. (laughs) Um, And so when I sold that house in, in 2021 and I bought this house here in LA, I was like, it has to have two houses on it at least. So I have a back house, my back house covers almost 100% of my mortgage. My son and I live for free. We just did another duplex. And I live for free in one of the most expensive markets in the United States. Yes, girl. Yes, girl. Because I I made a plan and then I said, these are my criteria. I need it to be in this kind of neighborhood. I need it to be at this price point. The interest rate was right for me. Um, I was able to sell my other asset to have the down payment to to do that, which was helpful. Um, You know, it needed to be fixed up. So I was able to put in some sweat equity right from the beginning um, to be able to to really get it up to snuff, which meant I got it in undervalued. A but identifying those goals are incredibly important. And you then, keep using that word asset. And I think that's a big one. I think that's something my generation missed out on. My generation was so interested in pleasure. You know, we grew up in the mm, 80s yeah. and everything was about pleasure. And when I think about the difference in me and my parents, my parents did buy assets, um, Mm. businesses, you know, property, mm-hmm. the home, yep. um, even some other collectible things that were still assets and have great value to this day. Um, so that's very interesting. They did not spend money out having a good time. They were very meager on the day to day. So that is because when you look at, I'm always looking, what are the differences? You know, where's the difference? And I think that's a yeah. great point. And you keep using that word assets. And I think my generation didn't understand that. 
and mm. something we don't it's also look important. At. Yeah, it's important for people to understand your home that you live in is not an asset. And, and people get confused by that. Your home you live in, if you have to pay for it every month, it's not an asset. It's a liability because you have to pay. And if you don't pay, you yep. will lose it. So that's a liability. But anything else that pays for itself is an asset, which is, again, why I say if someone's going to buy their first home, you should have a fourplex. It's still considered single family, right, under the under the mortgage rules. You can still make it a primary residence, fourplex. If you don't have enough, if you don't have enough to start investing right now on your own, find a group of good girlfriends or friends that also have a little bit. And y'all can pull together and do it together. When I say we just closed on this multiplex in Cleveland, Shaker Heights, right? Different. Everybody always tells me it's different. Um, But in Shaker Heights, Ohio, I pulled my sister who's currently, you know, going through a divorce and I pulled my cousin and we're all essentially single moms and we wanted to leave a legacy for our kids. And so we said, okay, here's, here's my plan. I, I presented the business plan to them and I said, are you guys in? And they were like, yeah. And it was a lot easier for us to come up with that down payment amount to buy that building because it, it was an investment. It was 25% down and because we all pitched in. We each only yeah. had to come up with a third. And now we have a, a property that's income producing from the beginning. They just paid their first set of rent <laughs> on December 1st. And, and, and we are now looking at what's the next project we can do. Pool your resources. It does not have to be individualism, which I think is something that we lost along the way with collectivism. We've yes. moved into this space space of individualism. Can I invest can with I, your family? Can <laughs> they, I just say this too, Portia? Like in the um, in the in the Mexican community, they've been doing this for years. This is yep. this is something that they. I mean, this is a cultural thing. Like they pull their money together and. If somebody wants to buy, it's it. It's got a certain name. It's called banda. So if somebody it's also wants like to buy, like a susu in the Caribbean yeah, community, yeah. yeah. So so if they want to buy, then they they come together and then they get to to buy the. Everybody gets a turn. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So you know, 100%. yeah, yeah. So I mean, in the Caribbean community, it's the same thing. They call it yeah. a susu, right? Everybody yeah. in the in the community contributes, so, and yep. every month it's somebody, somebody else's, else's turn to yeah. be able to to buy something. Same within. Um, you know, Asian American, Asian communities. I've seen it in in the Chinese community. I've mm-hmm. seen it in the Korean community where people it's, will buy businesses and then pass them on yeah. and keep growing and and provide opportunity for people. It yeah. is only really in this quote unquote American exceptionalism where we think everybody has to pull themselves up by their bootstraps themselves. But it's an idea that people don't actually practice, right? The rich know that that's not what we do. The the wealthy support each other and support their children through opening doors, opportunities, access, exclusive schools, et cetera, um, passing on businesses, these legacies. It's really only an idea that they are forcing on the lower classes that that they have then internalized, which keeps them impoverished. Right. Because now you're no longer competition. If you guys don't band together... You can't compete with us, but the moment you start banding together, you can start competing and buying assets and other things. And now, you know, there's more competition in the market. There's nobody at the bottom. Mm-hmm. And if there's nobody at the mm-hmm. bottom in capitalism, you can't have a top. Mm. Love so, it. Okay. Here's well, my question. If a woman <laughs> is, say somebody's in their fifties and they've not made these type of investments up until now, 
in your 50s, should you still be investing in assets or should you be yes. selling off yeah. assets? What or should you just be Ow. putting money in 401k? Is there still enough no. time for you to invest in things like properties? You're for, if you're just starting you're for, and you haven't overfunded your 401k in your 20s, you would have to put thousands of dollars a month away into your 401k to even have enough or try to have enough to retire on. If, if you didn't start in your 20s, you probably have aged yourself out of having the 401k be a real benefit for you. Which is why it's like early and often. Start them when they're kids. Give them time. Unless to now there were some but, of us who had employee uh, employer accounts that were given to us. And we had to roll over into a four hundred one k. So that would be equal to starting sooner, right? So that would yeah. I mean, if you that. had something that was rolling over, sure. But you've yeah. got to look at what it is. You know, if you're going to retire at fifty nine and a half, or or have to start taking money out of an account at fifty nine <laughs> and a half so or sixty, and you're fifty nine, right? Exactly, retire. <laughs> uh, but but I mean, if you think about when you have to start taking money out, right? Mandatory minimums on, on some of these accounts, nine years isn't going to do anything. You put mm-hmm. you put a thousand dollars a year away or a month away, and you've only put twelve thousand dollars away. What is that going to do for you for the rest of your life? Not Nothing. So you have to look at assets that are going to be essentially annuities. You go get a fourplex and you've got, let's say the mortgage costs you $2,000 a month, but you can get $1,200 a month in rent per unit. Well, mm-hmm. now you're getting $4,800 a month. Let's take out the the, the 12 uh, or the 22 on the mortgage. You still have $2,600 a month in income that's coming to you for that one investment, that's going to that's gonna generate a much larger return than whatever money you're going to put in your 401k. Now, I say this to people all the time. If your employer gives you a match, that's free money. Mm-hmm. Invest in a 401k up to that match. Take that free money. Don't leave money on the table because they're giving you something, right? But outside of that, you need to find other investments that are going to um, have a bigger impact. And that's where knowing your numbers is important. What, how much money do you actually need on a monthly basis to maintain your lifestyle, right? And to support you going forward, how much do you need? Because that's how much you have to create. That's also where the multiple streams of income come in. You should have in your portfolio investment income, yep. right? There should be interest that's coming off, dividends. You should um, look into real estate income. You should have somebody who pays you rent. Everybody should have someone who pays them rent. And sometimes I know people who have bought property that rent other places. California is an expensive market. So they buy in other places and that rent covers their rent here. And they just, they're like, I don't want to buy in California. What do I want to buy a million and a half dollar house for? That's like this big little postage stamp when I can take that same million dollars and buy a 20 unit in Kentucky that's going to make me $25,000 $25,000 a month. Mm-hmm. It's a, it, you know, you got to know your numbers. You should have your income from your job. You should all, everybody should have a business, something, some side yep. hustle that you do. With the advent of the internet, there are billions of people on the planet. If you just got a fraction of 1% to buy something from you for $5, you could be a millionaire. I there love that because I do. Planet. I tell my friends all the time, you have something to offer, especially midlife women. 
that are like, what am I going to do? My job ended or I got, I need to go back into the workforce. I'm like, what are you good at? Like I have a friend who's super smart. I'm like, you should get into editing. You're super smart. Mm-hmm. You have wicked grammar. Editing pays well. They're looking for editors all the time. You can do it right there the where time. you sit. And that's a big change is this whole gig economy, the passion economy, finding things. You, people pay a fortune for you to hem their freaking pants. So girl, if you can sew, start hemming some pants and skirts and you'll have a line around yeah. the corner. So I just, I just love that. And it can be, for some of you, it may be income to begin with. Maybe you're coming right. out of divorce. We had never had to work, but some of you. It can be the side you need your walking papers. That, mm. Yeah, that pays for yeah. you to leave or it pays for yeah. you to buy some assets or even just, I love that. And I think the multiple streams of income was a hard thing for my generation to grasp because we were told to be loyal. Well, my parents were loyal to the company. They were the company man. Mm-hmm. And my generation was still trying to be loyal, do what you can, um, maybe have a side hustle. But we were also told you can't chase two rabbits, commit to something. Mm-hmm. And so I've just in the last two to three years, been able to get the, it was so beaten into my psyche to do one thing and do it really well, hundred percent, that it was really hard for me to imagine running multiple businesses like I do now. But yeah. I feel very blessed that my multiple businesses feed one another and work together in a very cohesive way. Vertically integrated. Way. See, that's, I love that's it. the other thing is don't don't spread your set out like this, like I do this, 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 and this. But think about businesses that run together. Yes. And think about how you hire your children. I know we talked about this in the beginning, but if you've got a, a rental property business and your kids can answer phones or mm-hmm. they can call the plumber or they can do any of these things, then you can legally pay them right? You can pay them W-2 income for supporting in the management. And sometimes you might want to own that business and then have a separate business that's a management company. And even though it's both you, now you have a management company that has the contract with your tenants. And now you can hire your kids in the management company and they get a W-2 income and now they can get a Roth IRA. And now they have years of compounding interest. So that one business, that one asset, not only generates income for you, income for your children, your children can get paid. I think it's about twelve eight or twelve nine, twelve thousand eight hundred, twelve thousand nine hundred now a year tax free, which means you just reduced your taxable income to your business and gave it to your children, and they don't have to pay taxes on it. So your business doesn't, and you don't, and it goes into their retirement account, and you can do an employer match for your kids. I think almost up to three hundred percent. Now, be careful because if you have other employees in that business, you have to match for them at the same amount. You can't favoritize, can't do favoritism. But in a family business, now you are reducing your income on that business even more and fully funding an, an account for your children that they are then able to use in the future. That's legacy. And it's it, mm-hmm. one property. Well, let me ask with a plan. Let me ask you this because you know, in with our with our listeners, we have some people that are like, "Well, my kids are grown and out the house, and you know, but I have grandchildren now. Can they do that with their grandchildren?" No. Oh. <laughs> okay. Um, no, that's so, a- so 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 yes and no, right? Um, you can hire your children in the business in your business and legitimately pay them. So yes, you can do that. Uh, when we think about the the 12-9, right? And that that's really if children are working in the business of their parents. Mm. And so, um, you know, you have to check the IRS rules and see if there's an exception for grandparents. But you can still hire them. You can still give them W-2 income. You can still have a retirement account for them. You can still do all of those, all of those things. 
So that part is is available. Um, the other thing I would say is buy life insurance from your grandkids. They're mm-hmm. brand new. And it sounds weird, but but if your if your children will let you buy it and contribute, it's a great way to build an account that they can borrow against. You know, a million dollar life insurance policy, whole life insurance, or per- permanent insurance, um, bought when a child is brand new, is very inexpensive comparatively. If, if any of us tried to go get a whole life insurance policy at a million dollars, yeah. probably cost us 1500 bucks a month. But for a kid, it's like $300 a month. That's a huge difference. And then you've locked them in and you only are going to pay that for about, you know, 20 years. There's other products. So, you know, I'm, don't, don't go out and buy this product, but I'm giving an example at the end of that 20 years, you don't pay anything else into that policy and it will continue to cash compound and pay for itself for life. That child can borrow against the cash value in that policy, whatever that is. And by the time they're graduated from college, they're generally right based on historical stuff you got to you got to check with your mm. own but they should have enough cash value in there to pay off a full college education mm. they should have that. enough cash value in there they could put yeah. a down payment on a home or purchase a home outright depending on what market you're in um they'll have enough cash value in there to bank on themselves and it's something that you created for them you created their own economic vehicle and for many people that means that they got out of the abusive system that is the American banking system. Um, we talked a bit about credit and about how people didn't understand credit. The first credit score came out in 1989. This is not something that our parents and our grandparents had to deal with. They did banking with a handshake. And that's, right. that's only in particular communities, right? So in, um, in the white communities here, they did banking with a handshake. Credit scores were invented around the time that it came out that we couldn't discriminate in banking and the access to credit. And so credit scores were created. People who had longstanding banking relationships were given top tier credit scores. People who didn't have a banking relationship were given no credit and they had to then establish it. But what we know about having no credit is it's as bad as having bad credit, bad right? Credit, yeah. So, you know, you had already this unfair um, distribution of just using the credit system. And now there's all these different types of scores and X, Y, and Z. Um, but that, that's a creation of 1989. That is not a creation of something that's been at the beginning of the United States. And it, it has impacted young people going forward who nobody knew about credit, nobody was taught about credit, who have established bad credit, et cetera, et cetera. The additional piece that I would say is that you as a 50-year-old can give credit to your grandchildren. If you've got good credit and you've got credit cards and other things, you can make them an authorized mm-hmm. user right now today. And guess what? They now get that access to whatever available credit you have, the years <laughs> of length of credit that you have. So they might be two and have 40 years of credit. Why? Because you gifted them yours and it didn't cost you anything. It literally costs $0 and you've gifted a yeah. credit score. But most people don't know that they can do that. Yeah. And so there's all of these different ways in which the laws have changed that have impacted people's ability to build and protect wealth. We've got to listen to the midlife moxie, right? Because you guys are providing <laughs> this, this information. <laughs> but we've got to find our teams. And, and there is a team for every level you're in. Someone who's your financial advisor, someone who's talking to you about life insurance, somebody who's talking to you about home purchases, right? You've got to have your, your mortgage broker on your team. Because when interest rates go to 2%, you want them to call you and say, hey, I know you're in that 7% interest mortgage, but we've got 2% product right now. 
There's, you know, low points. Do you want to refinance? That person, that one call, that relationship can save you hundreds of thousands of dollars in over a 30-year period. Oh my gosh, that's such well, a good one, having a team, because mm-hmm. I just want to, and gosh, we're out of time again, Portia. You're going to have to come back, you know what I that know. means. Next time she's got to come back and talk about LLCs and corporations. <laughs> that's that's Christina's yeah, favorite thing to talk about. We, I love, you know what, I love talking about money. If we could talk about money all day long, all day long. Jesus, I'd be I'd be so excited. Money and Jesus. <laughs> and two times, money and Jesus. So, money yeah. and Jesus. Okay. <laughs> you can tell Christina didn't grow up Southern Baptist, because in Southern Bachelor, you do never talk about those two things together, you know, except when you pray into Jesus for more money. Okay. I want to remind our listeners at these great that, you know, the, the key takeaways, it's never too late. Take action. Know your numbers. Know where you are. And to find your team. And if you're out there and you don't understand any of these, you know, acronyms and things like that, that's okay. Um, there are people out there that will help you for free. You can shop this. So don't necessarily hook up with the first one. Mm-hmm. Don't get bad with mm-hmm. the first one. Yes. But like Portia said, find your team and find your team in all areas. Information is power. And then I want to remind our listeners that Portia has been with us before. If you go back to episode 44, we talk a lot about trust, wills, and estates. Valuable information there from the amazing Portia Wood Esquire. And we just hope you'll come back, Portia. Oh, I would love to. I would love to. And Christina, this one's for you. Proverbs thirteen twenty two: A good man slash my women leaves an inheritance to his children. There children. we go. Ooh, so my, yes. Money and Bible verses. We, <laughs> keep we love it. We love you. it. Yes. <laughs> right yes. here on Midlife Moxie. Well, everybody have a great week and we'll um, see you again soon. But until then, what do we always say, Christina? Until next time, go and get your moxie on. Bye now. Bye.